Hi, and welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Monday, October 24th, 2022. I'm your host, Lou DeVizio. I hope everyone had a good weekend. If you haven't had the time to get out and find some fall colors across all of the beautiful landscapes out here, do it soon. My wife and I went out to the Jemez Forest on Saturday, and it was one of the most extraordinary day trips I've ever taken. The color along the Jemez River off of NM4 was absolutely gorgeous. We made it up to Fenton Lake, too, and just sat and looked out at the water and the wildlife. We saw at least four blue birds that we think are Stellar's jays in the trees next to the lake. And we saw an osprey flying over the water looking for some food. It dove in a few times, didn't have any luck. But my point is, don't miss out on all our state has to offer, especially this time of year. I'm also excited because on this episode of the podcast, we air our first interviews in a series of candidate conversations leading up to the 2022 election. This past Friday night at 7 o'clock, we debuted two conversations with the leading candidates for Navajo Nation president. We'll hear from the current president, Jonathan Nez, and challenger, Dr. Boo Nigren, coming up in less than five minutes right here on the podcast. But for now, let's get right to the headlines impacting New Mexicans. More relief is on the way for ranchers and farmers affected by the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire. The U.S. Department of Agriculture says it will waive cost-sharing requirements for emergency forest restoration, conservation, and other environmental improvement programs. Senator Ben Ray Lujan made the announcement, which follows the approval of the federal spending bill that included $2.5 billion in relief for those affected by the fire and the flooding that followed. According to the Associated Press, that bill includes a provision to waive cost sharing for all programs administered by the USDA. Water managers along the Rio Grande are hoping to secure some of the several billion dollars in federal money meant to help drought-stricken western states. Stretches of the river near Albuquerque went dry for the first time in 40 years in August. Some officials say cities and farms in the Rio Grande Basin have been overlooked. There is $4 billion in the Biden administration's initiative to address drought that hasn't been fully allocated. Priority will be given to states served by the Colorado River, but officials in New Mexico and Texas want the Rio Grande included too. Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse-Oliver says her office is taking precautions to guard against the possibility of deliberate disruptions by party-appointed poll watchers and challengers. During a news briefing last week, Secretary Toulouse-Oliver said she's aware of efforts to recruit poll watchers by people who believe the election process is rigged and may want to interfere. But she says she's also encouraged by people concerned about the integrity of elections who volunteered to work at the polls under oath. The secretary says poll workers and county clerks are trained and empowered to respond to disruptive behavior, including delay tactics. Early voting in the November midterm has already begun and election day is November 8th. We'll be watching closely leading up to the election and on election day itself. We're also bringing you exclusive content to help inform your decision at the polls. This past Friday night at 7 on NMPBS, we began our series of candidate conversations, one-on-one -on -one interviews with major candidates for governor, Congress, and Navajo Nation president. Today on the podcast, we start with the incumbent for the Navajo Nation, President Jonathan Nez. Nez was elected president in 2018 after serving as vice president for four years prior. He tells New Mexico and Focus correspondent Antonia Gonzalez that that experience is vital as the tribe tries to come out from the COVID-19 pandemic. Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez, welcome to New Mexico and Focus. Thanks for having us, Antonia. 
and you're running again for top office of the Navajo Nation, why should people, why should the Navajo people reelect you? Three years ago, we went through a trying time as a people, as a nation, with uh, COVID-19 uh, coming into our lands. You know, as you know, we were number one in the country per capita in COVID positive cases. And we were able to turn it around. And now we are one of the most vaccinated uh, people in this country, you know, and our elders are leading the way at 90% vaccination rate. And, you know, with uh, the support of our public health professionals and our public safety personnel, uh, we turned a tide and we helped each other out throughout these difficult times. And if that isn't leadership, uh, I don't know what it, what it is. There, I know there was a lot of plans. A lot of those plans were put in place, but because of COVID-19, things slowed down, not just here in, on the Navajo Nation, but all over the world in this country. And now with the funding that has come in from the federal government, from CARES Act to ARPA to the infrastructure bill funding, and now the Inflation Reduction Act, there is a lot of irons in the fire. There's projects that are moving forward. We gave over a thousand homes electricity during the CARES Act uh, distribution, and there is just so much to be done. And, you know, it, this is not on the job training as the president, you know, it takes a lot of uh, time. Uh, building up your stamina to do this job. And you can't just uh, get your degree and jump right in and decide to be the president. You have to be tried. And, you know, I have been tried through some difficult times. And I think the Navajo people know that we as an administration can lead into the future and to focus on infrastructure, because that's very important. Our Navajo people want water, electricity, broadband, telecommunication, uh, also uh, building of homes, because as we noticed throughout the pandemic, that was what, um, or the lack of infrastructure is what uh, really uh, uh, made the uh, pandemic uh, spread a lot quicker. And talking and reflecting on COVID-19, which hit the Navajo Nation hard, is it time to fully open everything on Navajo land if you are elected to another term? You know, I think uh, we are very cautious, you know, uh, just look at what happened throughout the country. Um, people, uh, governments out there had a mask mandate. They take it off, they put it back on. Here on Navajo, we kept the mask mandate in place, protocols in place, uh, just so that our Navajo people can be safe. It wasn't about us individually. I know there was a movement throughout this country about you know, uh, you're taking away our freedoms government by forcing us to wear masks or telling us to stay home. But here on Navajo, really in Indian country, it was about taking care of our, our families, our communities and our nation. And so, you know, I think uh, at some point in time, yes, but with monkeypox uh, spreading throughout the country, we have four confirmed cases. So we're, we uh, are utilizing those uh, lessons learned from COVID-19 and right now we're just monitoring the situation and you know I think eventually 
the government's going to have to step back because the government uh, has taught uh, everyone how to what to do and what not to do. And it'll be the responsibility of the individual. And so to your question, eventually, yes, the restrictions will uh, be taken off, uh, will be lessened, but it'll be the responsibility of our constituency. And has as you've been campaigning across Navajo land, what are you hearing? What is the top issue that Navajo people want addressed, um, you know, immediately um, looking back that they think is unfinished business and then looking forward in the future? You know, through our uh, administration, even though there was a pandemic, we had a seat at the table uh, in Washington, D.C. You know, we have an open door to the White House. We, we take in full advantage of that open door policy, met with the President of the United States many times. Uh, we are working on streamlining some of the processes so that infrastructure, uh, economic and community development projects can get done quicker. Uh, one example is the infrastructure bill. There was a provision in there that said that we could be able to uh, have right away access for broadband telecommunication projects. and so. On Navajo, fiber optic cables are being um, put in all over the nation. And all we need to do is just get from the trunk line to the homes. And that's just one uh, example of what we've done to streamline the process. And I say that because one of the top priorities uh, that we started uh, four years ago is to get rid of the red tape, not just on the Navajo Nation government, but also the federal regulations and policies with a, a new Secretary of Interior, Deb Holland, working with the BIA. It's beginning to look uh, like that we can streamline a lot of these processes without changing uh, laws in Congress. You know, sometimes secretarial orders can be done. A second term, you know, it's going to be focused on infrastructure, getting water, electricity broadband telecommunication, building homes, because I truly believe that if you build a good infrastructure, that's the foundation for the future of the of a nation. You see that happen in other countries across the world. Now, I'm sorry to compare us to other countries, but they're sovereign nation. You have European nations that put a lot of focus on infrastructure about 20, 30, 40 years ago, and look at their economy today is booming. And I see that for the nation. And so that's what you're going to get with the uh, NES uh, Abeta administration, a really focus and really mentoring our, our new vice president by then so that he can take the rain, round, um, the reins into the future because he's a future professional. His family is uh, well known. And that's the future here on Navajo, young professionals. And I appreciate Chad Abeta saying yes to the vice president position, because it's not about just these next four years. It's about beyond that. And my wife and I prayed about it. And we said, you know what, even though if we get termed out because we're only allowed two terms, we also need to look look toward the future for our children or our grandchildren. And I see the Abedas being that um, future leader for the Navajo Nation. <laughs>
Of course, COVID-19 has been a major issue on the minds of tribal leadership around New Mexico and the U.S., but Navajo Nation presidential challenger Dr. Boo Nigren says now is the time to open back up. Correspondent Antonia Gonzalez asks him what's at stake and why voters should consider his leadership in November. Dr. Boo Nigren, welcome to New Mexico in Focus. Hello, Yate, to all the listeners and people watching on TV. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Who is Boo Nigren? Boo Nigren is born and raised on the Navajo Nation. I grew up in, on the reservation. Uh, my mom had me when she was 15 years old, um, half Navajo, half South Vietnamese people. And I've never met my dad. I've never met anybody on my dad's side, but I do get the name Boo from him. And then my last name is a little interesting because it's actually not Vietnamese. My mom did her best to spell out a Vietnamese last name and she came up with Nigrin. And that's who I am. I grew up here with no running water, no electricity. I lost my mom to alcoholism about two years ago. And I grew up just in poverty, just like a lot of Navajo people currently still live like that. So I feel like I'm a candidate that truly understands the everyday struggles of being uh, on Navajo. And I really want to give hope to the next generation and the current generation because I, f I feel like I've done my what my mom told me to do growing up was I have a ninth grade education. Your grandmother's never gone to school. We have no money. We live on food stamps and welfare. The only way you can make something of yourself is to go off and get an education, get good work experience, establish your career, establish a family and be a good person. That's the best way to help you help yourself and your community. I felt like I've done that. I have a bachelor's in construction management from the School of Engineering at Arizona State. I have a master's of business administration from Arizona State. I have a doctorate in education and organizational change in leadership from the University of Southern California. I've worked off the Navajo Nation as a, as a manager for about eight years in the construction field. And then three years, I three years back home. And then before resigning, from Navajo Engineering and Construction Authority as the Chief Commercial Officer. So I feel like I'm well-rounded. Um, I know the experiences and the expectations and most of the wants of the Navajo people are water, roads, electricity, better public safety, uh, treatment centers, and really trying to create safer and healthier communities. And that's something that I wanna get back to as a Navajo Nation president. And my hope is that the Navajo people will vote for Vote for someone like me who truly understands the struggle, whether it's living in poverty or understands as a professional trying to move home and establish yourself or just trying to figure out how do we prepare ourselves for the uh, everybody's leaving the Navajo Nation. I think through the 2020 census, you can see that more Navajo people live off the reservation than they do on the Navajo Nation. And one of my goals is going to be to try to reverse that so that our people continue to enjoy homeland just as they did 50 years, 100 years ago, and make sure that opportunities here on Navajo far exceed the outside. So that's who I am as a candidate. That's who I am as a person. And I also have a running mate who's Rochelle Montoya. She's from Torreon, New Mexico. If elected, she will be the first woman female vice president of the Navajo Nation, the highest elected female leader in, in our nation's history. So I think that this ticket re represents a lot, or represents a new direction. And the Navajo Nation was hit hard by COVID-19. 
How, what is the state, in your opinion, right now of the Navajo Nation? I think the Navajo Nation is ready to uh, reopen and ready to embrace because living here during the pandemic, a lot of us had to go to town. A lot of us had to go into the border towns to go buy the things that we needed to do. I felt like um, even after the vaccines were introduced last year, a lot of our people were uh, full-fledged into getting the vaccines, get, getting boosters, and then every community around us reopened with the plan. But on the Navajo Nation, we've continued to uh, stifle our communities, scare our people. And since I made my announcement on April 4th, being the first person to announce for president, I said it's about time we reopen 100% because there's a lot of Navajos that are vendors that are craftsmen quilters to Navajo business owners to even the government within itself some of its enterprises are really suffering and it's really bad because we're just increasing poverty we're making it difficult for our people to to fend for themselves and as president one of the things I've always said was I am anti-poverty I will do whatever it takes so our people have an opportunity because just growing up in a household where there's not enough money for anything not enough money for laundry, not enough money for gas. I understand that if someone has an opportunity to work and make something for themselves and help their community and their family, because a paycheck on Navajo is just not a paycheck for an individual. A paycheck on Navajo is a paycheck for basically the whole family, whether it's your grandmas, your grandparents, or your relatives, your siblings. A lot of those monies are shared, and that's what's important to me. And I feel like that's what is the state of the Navajo Nation now is we're ready as you can see, the flea markets, I'm at a flea market right now, and everybody's out and about shopping and being among each other. It's just that we haven't fully embraced that. So as president, I don't want to be a reactive president. I really want to be a proactive president that really is thinking because you are the leader. As a leader, you should be the trendsetter. You should be the one really forecasting what's coming next. And I felt like the Navajo Nation, we did a good job of getting boosters and and uh, staying away from ourselves, but the minute, um, but we just haven't come out of it. You had mentioned your running mate. We know that Navajo women are an important part in Navajo culture, Navajo way of life. So how did you come about p picking a woman? And like you said, if elected, there's never been a Navajo woman serving in the top office. And I think that that was another decision I made because I, I, I had a lot of people say that was going to be the worst decision that's going to tank your campaign. But personally, I felt like there's a lot of young Navajo women down from one years old to to people in their mid 40s, their 50s, that they they feel like they there should be representation in the president's office because. Growing up, there's so many single moms that play both roles. Why not have that representation in the president's office? And I didn't want to um, say that I decided to go with a male running mate because of the risk of losing the campaign. My campaign is in Navajo. The theme is uh, which means thinking for the future. If I weren't thinking for the future, then I would have made a, a, a decision based on politics. But what I did was you know what, let's set the bar and let's represent change and let's represent progress by selecting a woman running mate who also represents everyday Navajo people because she's had her challenges in life. She's had her uh, ups and downs with working, uh, taking on positions. And then as far as a mother, as far as a single mother, as far as losing her own child, things like that, I really wanted somebody that people could relate to. 
And I felt like that was important. She's got a bachelor's degree from UNM. And to me, that's good enough. Her husband is a, an army veteran and he's uh, disabled as well. He has health issues and across Navajo land, we always talk about our veterans and their health needs and things like that. Cause I really wanted real representation cause I didn't want to, I didn't want to have a facade of what looks good. Uh, cause for far too long, the everyday Navajo people are being forgotten. Thank you to both Navajo Nation presidential candidates for speaking with us. New Mexico in Focus candidate conversations continue this Friday at 7 o'clock on NMPBS. That's when correspondent Gwyneth Dolan sits down with each of the two major candidates for Congressional District 3. That's Teresa Ledger-Fernandez and Alexis Martinez-Johnson. For now, I'm going to turn things over to Gene Grant and the Line Opinion panel for the week. They're going to talk about another big race for New Mexico Attorney General. Our panelists this week are former New Mexico State Senator Dee Dee Feldman, Merritt Allen of Vox Optima Public Relations, and UNM Law Professor Serge Martinez. Now, a growing emphasis on crime and public safety has pushed this race up the priority list for a lot of New Mexicans. One big issue that's factoring in is the state's pretrial detention process. Democrat Raul Torres has supported legislation that would create a rebuttal presumption, quote unquote. We'll talk about what that means in a second against release. That essentially means the defendant would have to prove they aren't a danger in order to be released before trial. And Merritt, that's been a big sticking point here for a long time. And now Republican challenger Jeremy Gay says that ignores the basic American principle of innocent until proven guilty. He puts the blame on DAs for failing to file the proper paperwork in some cases. Merritt, do you find it interesting that the Democrat is pushing the hard-nosed law and order approach here? Or is that the only room he's got to run in at this point? Well, and as um, a Republican married to a Democrat criminal defense attorney, rebuttable presumption is a hotbed issue mm -hmm. in my household. Uh, and what rebuttable presumption uh, does is in certain cases of um, a violent offender or a repeat offender, it um, gives uh, the judge discretion to put the burden of proof on the defense mm -hmm. to make the case why um, an individual shouldn't be subject to pretrial uh, confinement. Um, and that's a challenge in New Mexico because our public defenders um, offices are understaffed and under-resourced yep. and uh, putting more work on them as a challenge. And I, I think it's, I think it's interesting. I support, um, I support the rebuttable uh, presumption uh, uh, legislation myself, although I understand the challenges because I feel, in, particularly in Bernalillo County, um, the district attorney, attorney's office wasn't particularly uh, competent or uh, successful at, at just kind of basic administrative tasks. Mm -hmm. And so um, I do find it interesting that you have the Republican uh, taking uh, the side of uh, a defendant saying, oh, come on, prosecution, just do your job. Right. And it can be said from a criminal defense perspective, um, the prosecutors do have the deck stacked in their favor. And this is not... Um, uh, uh, th this is just one more tool in their favor and more burden on the defense who already has so many burdens upon it, uh, trying to uh, make the case for their clients. Mm -hmm. So, no, it's, it's incredibly interesting that you've got the Democrat being tough on crime and the Republican ad, uh, advocating for defendants here. Yep. Um, but, you know, uh, 
the uh, Democrat uh, primary looked like two Republicans running, uh, running for office. That's a good point. That last point there is kind of fascinating, <laughs> actually. Senator, I want to stay in this uh, rebuttable uh, presumption uh, with you for a quick second here. There was a recent study by researchers from the University of New Mexico and the Santa Fe Institute that found that rebuttable presumption would have a small effect on violent crime rates and would result in many people being jailed unnecessarily. It's an interesting other side of the spectrum there. Where does that make you fall in this, in this argument? Well, it's it's a tough it's a tough decision. Mm -hmm. um, it all comes from an amendment to our constitution that was uh, passed several years ago that um, moved away from um, the rebuttable presumption and went to the clear and convincing standard. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing is, um, those studies came out during the legislative session. And before, I think one of them was sponsored by the Legislative Finance Committee or had something to do with the Finance Committee. Mm -hmm. And um, boy, Raul Torres went through the roof uh, and spent a lot of time trying to refute those studies uh, because his whole premise was, you know, we've got to stop the revolving door and this is the way to do it. Right. Um, so, I mean, it, it, I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, innocent until proven guilty is the bedrock of our legal system. Mm -hmm. And a rebuttable presumption seems to go against that and requires, um, you know, requires somebody to be locked up without uh, having proven their, their guilt right. uh, and removes the possibility of bail. I mean, the whole, the whole yeah. amendment was based on the idea that bail that many defendants could not afford bail uh, so it was unfair mm -hmm. uh, to lock them up so it's it's a tough one but i agree with merrick this is very interesting that the democrat that comes that uh, <laughs> tough on crime and the republican uh, who says that you know the the da's just have to file the paperwork properly that's right. essentially what he's saying mm -hmm. i don't know whether it's as simple as that though that's a good point there. I, I, I would posit it's not as simple as that. Uh, Professor, let me ask you this, uh, Professor Serge. Um, the politics all over this are, are, are easy to read, meaning a lot of folks are pointing at the district attorney's office as the last stop before people we don't want on the streets are back out in the streets and that everything's the revolving door there. If you take that away, politically, there's not much of a hammer left that hasn't been used before and so you can see why people would want this, but it, it seems to me if, if it doesn't move the numbers appreciably, what have we gained here besides a, a, a pending Supreme Court challenge in, in some cases? Oh, you're on, you're on uh, mute there, Serge. So, <clears throat> yeah, it is, I mean, you, you nailed it, right? This is just political rhetoric um, and trying to show how tough on crime without any really without a whole lot of analysis of the underlying issue. Um, and, you know, that study from UNM and the Santa Fe Institute is not an outlier at all. All of the research has suggested the same thing. Mm -hmm. You get very little benefit in terms of preventing anyone from going out and being charged with more crimes uh, while on release. And you get a huge negative effect of locking people up uh, for who were never going to be, never gonna, you know, do anything, not going to be charged with anything new. And 
you know, it's really frustrating that the the conversation is so one-sided and focused on this one note rather mm -hmm. than, you know, all of the people whose stories we never hear, who lost their job, who lost their housing, who had to spend time in jail, right? Which is in itself a pretty awful thing. Um, and for what, right? The This is not an evidence-based conversation. It's, you know, it's just it's purely rhetorical. Right. And the rhetoric, it gets so heated that it's easy, as often is the case, to lose sight of the underlying, you know, the actual rights and values that we, that we, you know, cling to in this country of innocent till proven guilty, That's of right. freedom from, mm -hmm. you know, being punitive, uh, being punished before you're actually convicted of a crime. Right. And it's, it's, it's extremely frustrating to watch this play out without any any reference to the underlying actual mm -hmm. data findings studies and the rebuttals you know i've heard the um accusations this is a flawed study because it doesn't feel right to me well that's you know the people who are saying that are smarter than that but they can get away with it interesting because points of there. the lack of depth of the discussion I, can i add Where's... something to that too? Mm -hmm. and that is the whole question of whether this emphasis on uh, crime fighting is uh, really a red herring for an attorney general. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of folks feel that the attorney general's job is not crime fighting. That's the DA's job and the police's job. But the the um, the DA has much more of an administrative function representing the state when it comes to water law, mm -hmm. uh, also fighting corruption and enforcing the Governmental Conduct Act. Um, and uh, those, are, those are, 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 are not as politically sexy as the crime issue, but those are really the bread and butter of attorney generals rather than uh, fighting crime. I I appreciate that distinction. That's actually a very key point you make there. Uh, Merit, interesting. I'm going to ask you a question there with the context being New Mexico has elected three Republican AGs in 110 years. But Mr. Gay, Jeremy Gay, recently released a poll from that conservative group Signal showing him statistically tied with Mr. Torres. No other polling shows him any closer than 10 points. Should Mr. Torres be in this fight, so to speak, in the last few weeks? I mean, should he be just cruising around this idea? I mean, he's in, in a fairly safe position here. Well, um, uh, that's certainly um, uh, the history uh, favors uh, favors a Democrat. And it's true that uh, attorney general's races uh, are political races, not who's the best lawyer, but who's the best politician. Right. And we saw in the primary that Raul Torres is a politician. Mm -hmm. uh, and if we looked at his um, record as a district attorney, he's definitely a better politician than he is a prosecutor. So uh, uh uh, that being said, um, I think that gives him an edge in this race. I'm very intrigued by Jeremy Gay, mm -hmm. um, particularly uh, the breadth of his experience and the breadth of his law uh, practice in Gallup, because he is covering everything that is covered by the attorney general's office. He does water law. He does um, Native American law. Mm -hmm. He does family law. He does um, civil litigation. He's covering the full gamut of everything besides just criminal prosecution. Uh, to Didi's point, um, really the, the things that an, uh, an attorney general um, has to cover, not just uh, criminal law. So I really like Jeremy Gay as a candidate. I think it's very bold to come out uh, in your 30s and run uh, run for AG uh, the first time out. Is 33 too young? 
furniture for this position? You know, I really, um, I think it depends on the momentum behind you. Um, there were mm -hmm. two big political machines behind each of the Democratic candidates, um, and that was going to be a big factor in the general election. Um, I don't see Republicans putting a lot of emphasis on this race. I've only seen one ad for uh, for Jeremy Gay. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I think uh, he's just got a challenge getting a party and a political momentum uh, behind him as a newcomer. Uh, and, and that's uh, tough for him because um, it's not all about uh, law, it's about politics mm -hmm. and, and he's a newcomer. But I wanna, I wanna see more from, from him. Um, I'm pleased to see, you know, the signal poll uh, yeah, is uh, 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 hopeful. Uh, the other polls, um, you know, 10 points is uh, a lot to overcome, but it could be a lot more lopsided than that. So that's a point given, given the history of our state. So oh. I think he's making a really good showing and I want to see more from Jeremy Gay. Thank you to Gene, our line opinion panelists, Antonia, President Jonathan Nez, and Dr. Boo Nigren. I hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget, our exclusive one-on-one -on -one candidate conversations continue this Friday at 7 o'clock on NMPBS. That's going to be Gwyneth Dolan talking to the candidates for Congressional District 3. You'll also hear from Congressional District 1 incumbent Melanie Stansbury. As always, thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like it, check out our show Friday nights at 7 o'clock on NMPBS. If that doesn't work for you, we always repost the show on our YouTube channel, individual segments also, so you can watch it there too. Also, keep an eye on those social media pages for updates throughout the week and for previews leading up to our show on Friday nights. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Thank you, guys. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio for Monday, October 24th, 2022. This is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Have a great week, everyone.